What's it like to be black and blue? I'm Darla Montgomery, and on today's podcast, we speak with five retired Acadiana law enforcement officers with well over 100 years of combined experience to ask the question, what's it really like to be a black police officer? Their stories may shock and surprise you. Now on 10 Talks Acadiana. 10 Talks Acadiana, the podcast powered by KLFY.com. Hello, everyone. I'm Darla Montgomery. Thank you so much for joining us. And we're so excited to tell you today's guest. It is quite an honor to be sitting next to all of these gentlemen. We're talking about uh, over 100 years of law enforcement experience coming to you right now to talk about a topic that is so near and dear to them because they've experienced so much in their time. Uh, The title of this podcast is Black and Blue and what it means, what it meant, what it means now, and what it will mean in the future to be able to put the badge on, and what it means being a black man who has to do so. We're gonna introduce our guest right now. We're gonna start with you, sir. Hello, I'm uh, Andres Landor um, from Lafayette, Louisiana, born and raised. I retired with Lafayette PD. I'm Terry Landry. I'm retired superintendent of Louisiana State Police. I'm Alex Montgomery, retired captain, internal correction. Uh, Criminal Investigation Division, Black Repair Sheriff's Office. I'm Gob Williams. I retired from the Lafayette PD 1989 as a Sergeant Supervisor. I'm Anthony Navarre. I retired in 84 to run for Sheriff. And since then, I've been uh, Chief of Police at Southern University and Administrator of the Weights and Standards Police, the Department of Transportation. So as you can tell, there's a lot of experience here, and there's one thing I want to briefly mention before we get started with our questions. You may have heard the name Alex Montgomery. Yes, that is my husband. And I just want to be very transparent, but understanding the reason he's here. All of these gentlemen have upwards of 30 years of law enforcement, Alex himself with 34. And so we have just such a great representation of a very important period of time because uh, uh, some of the gentlemen up here are pioneers and I, actually I want to say they all are. Uh, so let's go ahead and dive right in to it gentlemen. The first thing um, I want to talk about because it's still fresh on the minds of our viewers is the unfortunate situation we all knew about, heard about um, and know about from just a few weeks ago. The officer who took his own life and actually posted a very heartbreaking video trying to send a message. Tell me, Andres, we'll start with you. What was that message that you received from him? And, and first of all, your reaction to what happened? Well, first of all, I was, um, I was shocked by the video. Um, I wasn't shocked by uh, some of the things he was bringing up. It's something that people have been speaking out about uh, throughout the country. Uh, in fact, even here in Lafayette, uh, it's unfortunate that he, what he did, he thought he had to commit suicide in order to get the attention of individuals uh, in this area. And if you think about it right now, it's, it happened two and a half weeks ago and no one is even talking about it now. So um, I, I just think it's something that even after I retired, I spoke out a lot on uh, social media about incidents that, that would take place within Lafayette PD, 
uh, within the state. Um, but unfortunately, when you first become a police officer, you're looked upon from your coworkers, especially your white coworkers, as blue. You're not, you're not looked upon as being black. Not until you start speaking out about inequalities within the department and in inequalities that you observe on the street. And it's, it's at that point, you're no longer blue. You're, you're, you're considered black. You're considered uh, a rebel. You're considered a troublemaker and a racist. And that's a lot to bear on, on, from a, a black, with a black police officer. Um, we're the guys who, when we're in the black neighborhoods, we're Uncle Tom's. But when we're in the white neighborhoods, you don't have a right to speak to me. You, you know, who are you to be speaking to me? Do you know who I am? Do you know who my people are? Um, and even if they don't have people, just the fact that they seem to think that they're superior to me just based on the color that they were born in. Um, but it, it's, a, it's a sad incident what happened with the, with the sheriff deputy. And I, I feel like I know that I've, I've heard some of these guys on the panel speak about some things that happened in the past and we've made great strides, but it's unfortunate that we still have a long way to go when it comes to uh, race relations, especially within the police department and speaking out about uh, wrongdoings within the police department. Terry Landry, your reaction? Well, I have a, I have a broader perspective uh, of what happened with this young man, uh, it, what it tells me is that our mental health problem is more profound than we actually uh, recognize and want to talk about. Uh, our mental health problem uh, has has popped up and, and become very prevalent in our society today, uh, especially, and, and I, I was a state representative for eight years, and I understand uh, those out there who were saying government is too big, uh, we got to cut government, and when we started cutting in this state, education and healthcare is the areas that we cut. So our mental health uh, professionals now uh, are our police officers. Uh, uh, we have self-medication on an honor system. So the the, the suicide, uh, as as traumatic as it is and, and painful it is, uh, this young man just happened to be a police officer and identified some of the things that all of us who are sitting on this stage today has, has, has uh, experienced and seen. Uh, it's very unfortunate uh, that he had to take his life uh, to, to, to get some recognition. But the recognition uh, that he's seeking, uh, it's been out there for the past 50 or 60 years. All of us on this stage are standing on someone else's shoulder. Black officers who went before us who could not arrest a white guy. Black officers who, uh, were more or less overseers of the black community. So we're standing on those guys' shoulder. Uh, so the problem of the police and the injustices in the police department is nothing new. Uh, what is new is we have a new breed of, of police officers out there who are not, who are better educated, better equipped, and, and understand the problem a lot better than, than the society that we police. So this is not a new phenomenon. It's, it's something that has been going on and we're talking about, but until we address the mental health problem, uh, there are going to be other. There are two troopers killed themselves uh, within uh, six months. Uh, that happened this past uh, year. So, uh, and their problem was uh, they have been caught doing something inappropriate uh, in the community: misbehavior, malfeasance, police abuse. 
and, and they were caught. They killed themselves. So mental health, is, I think, is a, a large problem uh, as it relates to this young man uh, committing suicide. Very unfortunate. Okay. Alex? And um, Terry touched on a very important part that I thought about with this young man because I knew him. I basically helped recruit him, get him back into law enforcement. He was previous law enforcement years ago, went back to the military and uh, helped recruit him back in 2015, 16, to get him back into law enforcement. Um, I worked in the terminal affairs for five years. Um, we, we dealt a lot with psychological exams. We do psychological exams when a person is hired. Most big departments around the country not only do it when they're hired, but they do it on a yearly basis. Based on the things we see throughout our career, every day, every night, those things have a factor that affects your personal life, your family, your duty life. Um, and I think with this young man here, if possibly somebody had noticed it as a supervisor, noticed that he wasn't himself, ordered him to get evaluated, or just talk to someone, you know, it may have helped. Um, the community doesn't know what these officers, we know because we've been there. You don't know what we see on a daily basis. Dead babies, people killed in fires, people killed in car accidents, people killing themselves, uh, people abused. Nothing we can do about it, our hands are tied. You take that home with you. Who gets the effect of that? Your family does. So those type of things there, mental health is a big, big portion. Not only just to get them hired and make sure that they're level-headed to be hired for this position, but evaluate them on a yearly basis to make sure that they can maintain their position based on what they see or have seen in the past year or two years. Okay. Mr. Williams? Well, you know, without having to repeat everything that everybody else said, mm -hmm. one area of which I, I, I've seen in my career is the fact that, that cultural training, uh, police, white police officers not understanding our culture, because we as a people, we have a, a demeanor about us where we react to certain things, and if we speak, we speak loud. I'm, I'm a lot, I speak loud all the time. Everybody gets scared when I talk. <laughs> I know, the director's <laughs> probably having to adjust your mic when you speak. <laughs> it's okay. So be, be, because of that, because they don't understand us as a people, and the mere fact that most of these guys are, 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 are veterans, they've been to wars, and when you go into the military, the only thing they teach you is how to kill, how to survive. So when you go to target practicing, if you shoot somebody in the head, the neck, anything above the shoulder, that you don't even get a score for that, but you kill him. Okay, so because uh, uh, they go into what I, I believe most of these officers goes into what's called that survival mode, because they teach you that. Because when I got ready to go to NAM, when I went to survival training, the only thing they, they taught us was how to survive. So when that mode kick in, when I see a guy running to me, running towards me, and I order him to stop and he refuses to stop, I go into that kick in, I gotta survive, so I'm gonna take him out. <laughs> so uh, most, of the people, most of the police officers that is serving as a policeman today is ex-military, and part of the problem is the PTSD. Mr. Navarre? We're talking about being black and blue. Yeah. And, and, and when I started discussing this with my friends here, my colleagues here, and my boss and everyone, uh, one thing that everyone wanted to, to know and, and what was brought up, 
being black and blue, it's almost as if you're not any color because it's, it's like Andre said, sometimes you're blue, sometimes you're black, and sometimes you're neither. And yes. so tell me what it was like for you as a black man to, to come up the ranks and at the time that you did, the, the treatment that you saw okay. and what it was really like to be black and blue. Well, when I started, I became a police officer because there was an organization in the Lafayette called the Negro Business League. I had just come back from the military and I had enrolled at USL at the time and I was pursuing a degree in political science. Uh, I came home one afternoon and my father said that I needed to go to the Dr. Jones, Ransom B. Jones' office, because Dr. Jones wanted to see me. And I said, well, what for, Dad? I'm not sick. You know, why am I going to? So he said, boy, go, go. So I went to Dr. Jones' house. He was the president of the association. And in the, in the room with him was Avery Lilly, John Martin, and uh, Bishop Francis' father, Mr. Francis. And I, I asked, you know, what was the purpose of my, of my being there? And he said, we have been trying to integrate the police department in Lafayette. And every time somebody went to get an application, they told them they weren't qualified. I, my question was, I don't want to be a police. I'm not qualified to be a policeman. So they told me, yes, you are. You had been in the military. You had a high school edu uh, uh, a degree. And you had some college. I, I had about uh, two semesters of college. I said, well, look, I'll take the test to prove that black people can take the test. I took the test. Lo and behold, I get another call that they wanted to see me again. And they said, well, well you know, uh, we need you to, to become a police officer. And I didn't want to. I wanted, you know, I, I was going to pursue something else. And uh, I said I wanted to go back to college. In fact, I was still in college. So the said, well, just take the test, take the job, and in a few weeks, you know, you can resign. Well, I took the doggone job. And the first thing that, that I encountered was that, well, you know, we don't want no niggas over here. You know that, huh? We got our own two men over here, which was Joe St. Julian and Johnny Mitchell. Eventually, they gave the oath of office. They brought me to the clerk of court's office to, to register. And after I registered, uh, I asked about, well, what about training? You know, uh, during that period of time, uh, law enforcement agencies all across the country were talking about training, training, training. So I wanted to be trained too. In order to accommodate me in training, they created a black training academy in Bunky, Louisiana, and brought black police officers from across the state. So y'all weren't trained together? No, we were never trained together. And brought black police officers from across the state, okay? And in that group, uh, in that group with me was three people from Lafayette. Warren Celestine, who had just become a police officer, and two deputies from the Sheriff's Department. So we became together the first officially certified police officers in Lafayette Parish. Wow. I was the city and uh, Clifton Jornet and 
Tibug Busard. <laughs> and we're going to we're going to get back to you on on some of that history. I want to move forward to hear from everyone about what the experience is like for them uh, being black and blue, and what is it that you want our audience to know about Gob Williams' experience. Well, my experience was that in the in, in the seventies, I was an insurance agent. Okay, so that was a lot of. Uh, things going on in the black community whereas white officers was continuously going in and abusing African Americans in that, those communities. And I, I come out of Truman and Fightingville. So in 1972, my sister, she got sick and she wanted me to become, I thought she was telling me police officer, but she was saying a lawyer, okay? and. She, she said, kept saying a lawman, a lawman. So I became a police officer behind my sister's tree. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. And then at that time, I, I was under the impression I was going to save the world. I was going to change everything, not knowing what I was going to walk into. And all my friends, and, and you know, I was, oh, I, was, I, was, I was well hooked up with all my friends. And when mm -hmm. I, I told them in March, I said, hey, man, look, I'm a policeman. Everything you guys have done, you got to say, oh, come on, God. I said, no, nah. I said, I'm going to be a policeman. I said, I'm going to straighten up a lot of things. But when I got there, what I encountered was there was so much pushback against me because they didn't want me there. I, I, I knew, I seen that from jump. Because of that, we, we went after come out of the academy. They, they, we, there was, we couldn't write no tickets to, to white people. Uh, we was limited as to the type of arrests we could make and everything else. So crime could be happening? Yes. And, and you could do nothing about it? No. Because you were black? I was black. That's like you was limited as to what you could do. But you were wearing blue. I was wearing blue. And, and, and myself, Paul Green and Francis Green, we, and, and, and the rest of them, we come up with a plan, so we're going to tackle this. And, and one of the, the biggest things uh, uh, that, that stands out in my mind and lived with me for a long time is when they had ran out of white officers to go handle calls. And... Uh, there was a, a, a call that came down on Shannon Drive, right off of West Bayou Parkway. I'll never mm -hmm. forget that. When I got there, I had my window down, and the, the, a white lady and her husband was in, working in the flower garden. They said, oh, Lord, they sent us a Negro, mm -hmm. a nigger. Just, I might as well say it, just like what? Mm -hmm. Oh, and chills ran down my spines. I said, God, man. I said, oh, I got to make a believer out of them. So I went, and I had to take a report. I took the report, make a a long story short, took the report, and then when I went back to the police department, Lieutenant Berg, he asked me, said, what's wrong, Gob? I said, man, something just happened to me. I said, I, I, I can't believe that. This day and age, I said, this stuff is still happening. And I, when I explained it to him what had happened, he took me, put, put, him on, put me his, my head on his shoulder and said, it's going to be all right. He said, just <laughs> stick with it. He said, I need you to stick with it. That was my worst experience I had in law enforcement. Wow. And you, Alex? Well, I pretty much started, like I said, the early 80s. Um, it was a lot better than mm -hmm. these guys because they, they paved the way for us, you know, getting mm -hmm. in there early. But I remember throughout my career uh, just trying to move up in certain <laughs> areas. And I was, I was actually a sergeant in the jail. And uh, they were moving from 12-hour shifts, they're going to try eight-hour shifts, and you had a 7 to 3, a 3 to 11, and 11 to 7. Well, on my particular shift, I was the senior sergeant, but, and I was going to pick the 7 to 3 at the time, mm -hmm. but the assistant warden at that time left it up to the watch commander, 
because out of all the in the jail, there were probably only two or three black sergeants on four different shifts. Mm -hmm. One shift didn't even have any. Um, and that particular shift, I wanted the seven to three so I could work and work my security at night like I was doing. And uh, when it did, when they finally made a decision, they gave the guy that had the least amount of experience but best friends with the assistant warden the seven to three job he had first pick. And I said, how is that? I have more time than him. I'm the senior sergeant on the shift. Well, um, you work for us and we make the decision. Remember, this is a political job and you're at will. And at that time I was a young buck, hothead, went to these experienced guys here and they basically told me, take one for the team, let them know that you're dissatisfied with it, but take one for the team and eventually you will get what you need, what's promised to you, what you deserve. And just so happened about two months later, I was picked to go to tra uh, patrol division um, and he ended up staying in the jail. Mm -hmm. um, it was just a lot of stuff and as far as experience or able, the ability to communicate with inmates that were in there at the time, I could better than he could. They were afraid of him. I could actually go into a cell block, talk to people, find out what's going on in jail, find out if there's any illegal activity, find out even what's going on on the streets. And they were like, why are you treating the people like that? Well, my dad always told me, treat people with respect and you will get respect. Respect is not something that's given, it's earned. Mm -hmm. And the same people that were in jail were the people that I basically grew up around. Mm -hmm. They weren't bad people, they just made a mistake and who am I to judge them? And that's how I told him, I said basically, I have some good mentors that are leading me in the right direction. I'm not gonna get angry with you, but I won't forget it. Amen. Mm -hmm. Terry? Oh, I've got so many experiences in <laughs> spite of the success that I enjoyed. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I talked about those mm -hmm. uh, trailblazers early and, and, and recognized that, uh, you know, I was surely standing on the shoulders uh, of people. And as I look at this day, there's about four generations of, of of police officers here, you know, with with uh, Captain Navarre uh, kind of being the, the the pioneer of all of us. Then the Gob era came, and then my era, and then these young men era came along. Uh, so the way that it had been paved for us, it, uh, the tolerance, the NAACP had fought those battles uh, in court for us. Uh, we weren't, I wasn't Harvard State Police. Uh, because I was tall and good looking. I was hard because. Um, Notice he put the good looking in there. I was, they, were, they were forced. They were forced by, by consent decrees. They, they had to hire African Americans in those, in those agencies. And uh, I mean, I had all sorts of encounters. There were, I worked, there were seven different parishes that were here where, and I, in Trubai. And uh, I, I, I now call the parish, St. Martin Parish was a parish that. Uh, the white constituents just really didn't believe that black people could hire them. That's right. uh, you go in the levee uh, and, and some of those bars, yeah, Calahula, and great people, great people. I'm not mm -hmm. dis right. disparaging who they are, but their mindset and their culture was whites take care of white business, black take care of black business. Amen. That Amen. was their culture. Uh, my struggle many times were other agencies that uh, never ever identify that a black man can be a state trooper. Um, I was fortunate, I had Joyce Thibodeau, uh, first African-American uh, black uh, uh, state trooper. I had Ludger Alexander, Henry Sam, those guys were before me. So the way was paved a little bit, but we encountered day-to-day -day interactions uh, all the way up to my being appointed as superintendent. 
there were people in the agency that I police till today, till today in the 21st century don't recognize that I was the superintendent of the state police. And Amen. you were the first. I was the first African-American. Still do not recognize it. And, you know, and that's, I don't, I don't want to say, yeah, it's painful. It's painful uh, that, that people want to acknowledge your work and the hard work that, you, that you, you've done. Uh, or your ability to do it. Or your ability to do it. Uh, you know, you got this job because you were black. Right. That's you were appointed superintendent because the governor had to have a black man uh, <laughs> for political reasons. Uh, I mean, I heard every excuse. Uh, somebody else pulling your strings. Uh, you're not really in charge. Somebody else is in charge. The brutal attacks that, that, that my family had to endure. Uh, people calling my house, uh, trying to get to my wife to tell my wife something disparaging about me. Uh, I, I mean, I've got a lot of scars, that, but I, I didn't let it define who I was. I didn't let it dis make me bitter. It didn't, I didn't allow it to make me uh, resentful. What it did made me better. It made me better. And I stand here and sit here today proud <laughs> and know who I am. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Terry. Andres. I joined the force uh, after I served in the military. I was in the Army, stationed at Fort Benning. I was a combat medic, served in Iraq. After serving in Iraq, I boxed for the Army um, for about three years. And uh, Paul Green helped me get on the force. When I got on the force on, in 94, I can vividly remember going through something called uh, Hogan's Alley. And basically what it was, it's a scenario where police officers go through different scenarios. Um, you go room to room and each room is a different scenario. One may be a, um, a crime scene, crime right. scene, different yeah. crime scenes or domestic, some type of domestic disturbance or whatever. And during during your time of going through the uh, Hogan's Alley, you have what's called an agitator. And the agitator is an individual who's basically not even part of the crime scene, but is someone in your ear just screaming at you, telling you, go left, go right, do this, do that. And you, you're supposed to focus on the mission at hand and not focus on, on, on the agitator. And I noticed in, um, this is in 94, there was one particular agitator who would continuously call the black officers, the N-word, while we were going through the uh, scenarios. And in fact, there was even a female that went through the scenario at one point and she, and she was called a nigga bitch. Um, we started complaining about it. In fact, we uh, contacted the, uh, well, I was part of the Magnolia, mm -hmm. and we made a complaint with the Magnolia peace officers. And the excuse was, the officer gave an excuse of that's what you're gonna hear on the road. That's what you're gonna hear when you're on patrol. So that's why I keep screaming this in your ear. But the only thing I noticed was you, you're not screaming what, what the white boy is gonna hear on the road. You're not, you're not screaming different derogatory names that people refer to white people as on the road. They're gonna experience that just, just as well as we will. And this particular officer, the, the complaint was filed and, and it, it went up the chain and uh, ultimately, they made him stop. I was the type of officer who always spoke up. I always spoke up. Um, I, I guess I get it from my mom. But there was times that, that I would speak up. There's one particular time that really put a damper on, on my career as far as law enforcement. 
I was asked to be part of the gang task force, FBI gang task force. I was called at home, I was asked, did I want to be part of it? And I said, sure, and I went. I went to the gang task force. It consisted of officers from different departments, uh, sheriff department, it's a task force. So you had different St. Mary's. Um, I was the only one from the PD. I was the only black and I was chosen. And I can remember them telling me that you're gonna go through, in order to be able, in, in order to be accepted on the gang task force, we're gonna go through your, your uh, background. We're gonna talk to your neighbors. We're gonna get to find out about you. We're gonna mm -hmm. dig into your past. Do y'all have a problem with that? And I was like, no. And then they said, we're gonna also do polygraph. Everyone is gonna be polygraphed. And um, once you pass the polygraph and, and the background check, then you're gonna be official task force members. So they said, they said we, um, we pulled names in the back. And Landor, your name came up first, so you're gonna be polygraphed first. So I was like, okay. They did a pre-polygraph. Pre-polygraph is where they question you before they polygraph you. And usually when they polygraph you, they ask you the same questions from the pre-polygraph. And it was odd because the pre-polygraph was done that day. And I was the only one that did the pre-polygraph that day. And I can remember the guy's FBI agent, his name was Charlie. Can't, I can't remember mm -hmm. his last name. He was out of the New Orleans area. He started asking me questions. And the questions he was asking me was about my supervisor, my former supervisor, who was still at the police department. And he was asking me questions like, have you ever seen him do this? Have you ever seen him do that? Have you ever heard of him doing this? What do people say about him? Have you ever seen him take money? Have you ever seen him give information? And I'm like, no, why are you asking me if I'm, I'm, I'm the one on the task force, trying to get on the task force? And he said, well, we're going to ask him the same questions about you. So I said, okay. Well, I had to wait a few weeks before uh, they sent a polygrapher from New Orleans, FBI, uh, sent someone from New Orleans to polygraph me. And in the meanwhile, I asked the chief at the time, Kraft, um, what is this about? Why? I mean, I'm cool with getting polygraphed, but why are they asking me questions about this individual? And the individual was a black, another black police officer. Mm -hmm. And he basically said, uh, that's just part of the, you know, that's just what you have to go through in order to get on the, on the task force. So I said, okay. The day came, my polygraph, it was time for my polygraph. And, uh, I never, I've been polygraphed before, but I had never had as many suction cups and pads. I had sat on a pad, I had one around my waist, I had one on my finger, I had one on my arm, I wow. had one under my feet. And I'm waiting on the polygrapher, the polygrapher, he said, you ready for the questions? I'm like, yeah. So I'm waiting on the same questions that they asked me about the mm -hmm. officer. Well, what they did was they switched it. And instead of saying, have you ever seen him do this? Mm -hmm. Have you ever seen him do that? They said, have you ever done it? Mm -hmm. And it was you, 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 you. And it was all, no, I've, I've never done that. And then he, I can remember him taking off my, uh, taking up the bands off saying, you pass with flying colors. And after that, four years after that, no one had ever been polygraphed on that task force. It wasn't even, it wasn't even something that required you to get on the task force. But I found out what, what brought that on. Four years later, there was chatter about, cause I was in narcotics, about me being a dirty cop and that the FBI wanted to question me. 
So I'm like, okay, they polygraph me, so, so let's so do it. Like, I, I want to get it done. Like, I, I want to get it over with. Let's do it. So I can remember going to the same, and it was, it made me feel low because in the same room that I used to interview people, <clears throat> now I'm being interviewed. And I'm at the Mid-South Bank building at the FBI, with the FBI, and I can remember the guy, Bostic, and he's asking me these questions. Do I know this person? Do I know? And I'm like, no, 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 no. And he said, can I talk to you off the record? I said, yeah. He said, you know, Landau, we've been in your life for over 10 years. And I'm like, okay. And he said, we've never got a complaint on the streets from you. We've never got a complaint from other uh, citizens. They have never seen you do anything. It's all coming from university and Pinhook. That's where the police department is, Lafayette Police Department. And that's what he said. That he, he, yeah, he didn't say it's coming from the Lafayette Police Department. He said it's coming from Pinhook and University. And he said it's just about how you dress, how you drive, what you drive, what you live in, you know. And, and he said, your friends are. And, and, wow. and he said that's all it's about. You got palm trees in front of your house. And I told him, I said, but I don't have, I don't have a wow. hunting lease. I don't have four by fours. I don't have a fishing boat. I don't have campers. I don't have all the stuff that these guys have. But I saw that it was all just the, the polygraph and, and the interview. It was, I don't know, it's just, I felt betrayed by, by law enforcement. And that, that's when I really realized that they don't look at you as blue. They look at you as black. Amen. Amen. Wow. Amen. And palm trees Amen. are beautiful, by the way. So, <laughs> yeah. I don't know what they're, I don't know what that. Well, you know, but that the rules are definitely different. I like, yeah. I like palm trees. Yeah. 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 The, the rules are definitely different. They yeah. are, and that's what I, I want to close on because we're approaching our closing thoughts Look. because I want to touch on where we are right now. Is it an issue of some longstanding um, beliefs, behaviors, uh, because we still see this because of the sheriff's deputy who brought out these very same things saying uh, the disparities in the hiring process. Um, I, I know that there are some statistics with the Lafayette Police Department. Um, Andres mm. provided me with a few of them uh, that shows some real still today disparities in, in hiring. There are only, you know, very few blacks that are in the upper, upper management or, or levels uh, of, of policing. And he showed me that. So I want to know from each of you, what do you think some of the, what's, what do you think are the, the key, our biggest issues that need to be addressed and need to be changed? And this will include um, when we hear talk of police brutality, because I <coughs> firmly believe it starts everywhere, whether it's police or whoever it is, mm -hmm. in the hiring process. Is that person capable of doing the job? Number two, what is their mental state? You guys touched on that very well. We talked about that extensively. What is their mental state? Who are we hiring these days? regardless if it's police or anyone else. Can they do the job? We'll start with you, Andres. The statistics that I gave you was uh, in 2015, actually. Mm -hmm. And we addressed that with the NAACP, a few other officers who chose not to uh, be identified. And when Reginald Thomas and Aguilar took over, um, those numbers went up. Um, they Can you start, just share them real quick? Yeah, like, like there was like six positions that I saw that were upper, upper level and there was only one black out of the six. Well, there, there, was, there was no blacks in adult uh, CID. 
uh, investigations. Mm -hmm. There were no blacks in recruiting. There was there were no blacks in training. There was one black in narcotics. Um, so all your nine to five, all your your specialized sections, K nine, um, they didn't consist of of any African Americans. And of course, one of the excuses that they made was most of the black guys that we interview. Uh, they smoked marijuana in the past, so we couldn't, we couldn't hire them. But there was some strides made when, when Reginald Thomas was, was uh, well, he, he tried to get the chief position. He ended up getting uh, deputy chief, and Aguilar was the chief. They, they, people were being transferred, people who should <coughs> be, not just because they were black, but people who were experienced. Because you, you have to remember, at one point, we had like five unsolved murders, and they were all on the north side of town but you didn't have any black investigators that can go in these neighborhoods and speak to these to the people. And to, to finish up, people, people were starting to, you had blacks that were put in positions that they should be in and that they benefited from. But what I'm seeing and hearing now is, of course, after Deputy Thomas is gone and Aguilar is gone, mm -hmm. it's starting, we're starting to take some steps back again and people are starting to get transferred to certain sections who shouldn't be there or just there because of who they knew or who they know at the time. And it's going back to that old era, the 2014, 2015, 2013 era. It's going back to that era. I found your stats for you. So it's Lafayette, Louisiana by population race, Lafayette Police Department back in 2015. You mm -hmm. said this is when this was. So 247 officers were employed. Uh, Caucasian was 80.57% to 17% African-American. Yes. That's, well, look, I want to I want to piggyback on that. When I was hired, they had seven sergeant positions in the police department. There was no corporal. There was senior police officer and patrolman and juvenile officer. They made me a juvenile officer. Then I became a patrol officer. And that was the end of it. When they gave the test for sergeant, they gave seven tests. They gave all seven tests. I took all seven tests. And in those days, they would promote from top down. Mm -hmm. Okay? I passed all of the tests. Two of them I had the, the highest score on the test in history. And all the rest of them, I was number one on the list. So they abolished the sergeant's position. <laughs> It took them seven years, seven years in that period of time. The white guys got together and, and they had a meeting with the chief and said, look, we want to be promoted sergeant. You know, we got to be promoted sergeant. And we needed them. We were down to two sergeants when we had seven, seven or eight. Okay, so then I get called and I said, well, we got to promote you sergeant because we want to promote this guy. <laughs> When it got to lieutenant, you know, again, I was at the top of the list. They couldn't promote nobody behind me. So when they promoted me to lieutenant, well, we don't know what we're going to do with you. What am I going to do with you? I <laughs> said, well, you know, I'm here. Let me do my job. I'm here is what I told them. So <laughs> I get promoted to lieutenant. When it come to captain, we had two captains left. And they said, well, we're going we're gonna to promote you to captain, you know, but we're going to put you over the patrol division. I said, fine. That's what I wanted to do. 
unbeknown to them, that's, what that's where I wanted to be, okay? <laughs> when it got to the rank of major, they abolished the major's rank. When it got to the assistant chief, I was still the number one man in the police department. I was in rank, time, grade, everything. I was number one at the top. They abolished the, chief, the assistant chief of police position. And how the assistant chief of police position got abolished, the chief had gotten trouble with the with the uh, with the mayor, and and I was a lieutenant, his assistant, not the assistant chief, assistant to the chief. So they called me in and they wanted me to uh, a group of people called called me in and wanted me to testify against the chief. And I said, hey, look here, boys. I said, all of you guys in here are my chief, the fire chief, the executive. They were all executives, mm -hmm. okay? So I'm just a lieutenant. I'm not gonna participate in this. And I told him, I said, I'm not a politician, <coughs> but the mayor got the mandate from the citizens, you know, to do service. Mm -hmm. And I told the chief, you know, I, I told that to, to the civil service when they brought me before civil service, you know, the mayor get, get a mandate from, from the people. He pick a chief of police who he think is gonna support him and follow him, you know, mm -hmm. obey most of his mandate. And I said, so I'm not gonna testify for either one. I told him, get, get a pair of boxing glove and take them outside and let the two chiefs battle it out. <laughs> okay? You know, the bottom line is this. There are more of them than there were of us. Yeah, all We couldn't be in all the areas we needed to be in. So Mayor Bowens, mm -hmm. Kenny Bowens, mm -hmm. he's the one who stepped in and said, no, we're not going to do it like that no more. We say, we're going to do a, the seniority system the way it's supposed to happen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay? When and, it was your time. Right. Everybody was against Kenny Bowens, but Kenny Bowens stood firm and he stood behind us. So the seniority system started to work in ways all of us with the, 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 the seniority, we started making uh, rank. Mm -hmm. So now, I'll never forget the time I, wanna, I went on an accident and I had to write a ticket and this white lady told me, she said, I want to see your supervisor. I, said, mm -hmm. I called my supervisor mm -hmm. and here come Blackwell. <laughs> said, I don't want to see him. I said, well, that's my supervisor. He said, who's your supervisor? So we call the next supervisor, mm -hmm. here come Big Warren. I said, I don't want to talk to no black supervisor. That's the only supervisor y'all got. I said, well, yes, ma'am, except the chief. I said, and the chief is off today. So it was those kind of issues of which we had to face coming up as black police officers. Now, once they saw the seniority system going into place, by this time, they didn't kick Kenny Bowens out. Now, we ain't got no more backbone, nothing, mm -hmm. no backup. So what started to happen, then they started hiring staggeringly. They would hire 15 whites, one black. 12 whites, one black. one black. So you see, so that made the hiring in a staggering position, whereas all of our seniority was lost. Everybody, including um, Tony, he was assistant chief, because couldn't call him, he was off. You know, when you become a certain rank, your rank have his privilege. <laughs> but anyway, uh, this is this is what had happened in the police department. When they start staggering, they start staggering the hiring process, so that made us very few. That was we was already very few. 
So that's what happened as far as the hiring process was concerned. There was very few black hires. And they made the statement. I got something important. We made a mistake. We will never let that happen again. And I don't believe until today that rank from corporal all the way to assistant chief or chief has ever happened again. Except when, uh, what's his name? Huntley? No, the marshal. The marshal. Oh, you're talking about deputy yeah. when, 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 when until he Thomas. came around, until right. deputy Thomas came around. Right. Thank you, and I'm sorry for intruding. Oh no, 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 well, you're well, fine. Well, me, you're fine. Me, but before before you do that, because we're running we're running out of time. Uh, since we reversed things, Alex, your final thoughts? Because we're talking about what it will take to change, what it takes to change things, and where we are. First of all, we talk about community policing. That's something they did when they first started. They taught us how to do it, mm -hmm. and doing community walks. Community walks are nice. They're publicized. But that's something that officers should be doing every day. Walking oh, in their communities, meeting the people that they serve every day, knowing them on a, on a basis. People know when they're working, who's working there, who they can trust. And you don't need a photo op to do that. You don't need a photo op. Stop, stop with this photo op. Have these officers get out of the car, take this tent off of the window, let the people see who's driving through the neighborhood. Amen. Amen. Put the window down because you can't smell crime or hear crime with the windows up. But you can talk to people. When you put that shield up, you put a shield up between you and the community. Now, when you really need them, they're on that other side. They're not coming to meet you, okay? So the thing is, we first have to figure out one thing, how to get the trust back from the community. One, departments. When God worked for the city, he was with the state, he was with the city. You can tell who we work for because we hung around each other. Officers today with the sheriff's office or the city police or the marshal's office, they all separate. They go their own ways. They don't talk to each other. I work for this agency. It's the best agency. None of your agencies are the best agency. You're one, you're men in blue. When times are hard, times are rough, you count on everyone you have out there. And I wanna give Terry his time too, yes. but I do wanna ask you this mm -hmm. approach, cause you know, I'm married to you. Mm -hmm. You know that, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what I wanna know is, mm -hmm. we've talked about this, when the officer approaches someone, and also when someone from the community, when a citizen is approaching an officer. Right. That we both need, Respect. you said, lessons in how to do that. Yes. It's not what you say to a person, it's not how you, it's how you approach, how you them, approach and them, how you talk to them. Same thing with the officer. When he's walking up, you don't have to walk up with your hands on your gun. That's right. As a, as a citizen, you don't have to walk up to that person with your mean face on like you're getting ready to do them something. Let them know that you're, you want to work together. The only way we're going to beat this problem here of crime, mental health problems, is working together. And it's all these assumptions. That's what yes. he's talking about. Yes. They've already presumed that they couldn't do the job, so yes. no one would get promoted. That's correct. That's right. Terry, you, you're, look at this. You're wrapping it up. So. I, I am, I'm wrapping it up. I'm amazed, and I appreciate the opportunity to, to share with these uh, distinguished gentlemen. Uh, look, uh, our criminal justice system is broken. Amen. It's Amen. broken uh, beyond what I think the public knows. Uh, we talk about culture, and, and the police <laughs> and the community uh, in the black community has always had a turbulence relationship. It made it difficult for those pioneers to come in and be accepted in the black community. Uh, they have been accepted. Uh, I urge all of us, and I, I do it, I'm not a police officer anymore, but I, ur I urge young African Americans to become police officers. Get out there and make a difference in your community. Your mere presence will make a substantial difference in Amen. people's lives. Police train every year. They, I think they shoot twice a year. Uh, I don't think they drive. I don't think they do a lot of driving training. Mm -hmm. But the things that they do most 
they do the least, they train the least. And that's inner contact with right. people of different cultures, gender, mm-hmm. and background. That's what they do the, mo- the least. But every day you encounter people with different backgrounds, different views in life. And I believe two things that is crippling the police department, I say two things, several mm-hmm. things, the lack of training, yes. ignorance, and fear. Fear. Oh, those are, yes. those oh, are yeah. three big ones. Ooh. And supervision. And, super, and leadership starts at the top, not at the bottom. That's right. I've been all over the world. I've never seen a tail wag a dog. That's right. <laughs> well That's said. Right. Well said. That's right. Gentlemen, I am so honored to have you all here today and sharing with us. And this won't be our last time. Okay. We got, <laughs> I got a lot he's already, he's already a, ready for I'm the next a, one. I got a lot to tell. <laughs> you know, when, when you're talking about, uh, and I, I got to tell this before we go. Okay. When we... Well, we talked about the things that are painful for us as, as yes. police officers, and, and certainly we, we're all proud of our accomplishment. Should be, I am mine. The sheriff's department have this, at Angola, have this museum, and they have the Wall of Fame. It's all people in criminal justice that they put on the Wall of Fame. I'm the first African-American. The guy before me is on the wall, and the guy after me is on the wall. I'm not on the wall. You're not on the not wall. Not on the wall. Wow. And I'm proud that I'm not on the wall. We got to wrap things up, gentlemen. Thank you again. Yes. Yeah, we got to so do it again. Yes, There's a lot, of, lot of... Uh, we'll continue this conversation. We'll call it Black and Blue 2. That's good. Sounds good. good. And this time, maybe you guys will get to ask each other questions. We'll see. Thank you so much for joining us for 10 Talks Acadiana. Thank you for joining us for Black and Blue in Acadiana. 10 Talks Acadiana. Subscribe wherever podcasts are downloaded. A Next Star Media Production.